So Alex, how do you feel about the name the Canadian Jewish News Podcast? I think it aptly describes what we're doing. Yeah, I think it's pretty uncreative. And so last uh, last episode, we, we put out a call for new name suggestions. Um, and we actually got a few. I was kind of surprised at how many suggestions yeah, we got. Yeah, people are listening. Who knew? Thank you to everybody who Means actually a lot. <laughs> offered something up. Uh, so there were a couple good ones. Uh, Jamie Hirsch uh, of the Menschwarmers podcast, he suggested... Give the, it a listen. Canadian Jewish News Podcast Network. Yeah. Uh, he suggested the Canadian Jewish News uh, which it works when it's written and would never work to read it yeah, out every single time. I like that the first time, and I feel like every time that you have to say it or listen to it, it'll get less and less funny and more and more annoying. <laughs> Sorry, Jamie, we appreciate the suggestion. No. Uh, you also got, uh, what was one of the ones you got? Yeah, one of them was a Canadian Jewish Nachas, which, mm. pretty good. Yeah, that's okay. That's I like okay. It. Uh, ultimately, we're going to go with one that uh, Dave Gruber uh, tweeted at us, and which is the Canadian Jewish schmooze. That also aptly describes what we're doing, but... <laughs> yeah, but it sounds a little bit better. I agree. So, uh, on that note, hi everyone. Welcome to the Canadian Jewish schmooze. I'm Michael Freeman. I'm Alex Rose. This week on the podcast, we have Noah Liebtag. Hi, everyone. Noah is uh, one of the sales folk here at the CJN, and uh, he also Are does... Are allowed to tell them that? Yes. Okay. He also does comedy, in case you couldn't tell. I also do comedy, in case you couldn't tell. First up, we're going to be talking about Bereshit, the so-close uh, spacecraft from Israel. We're also going to be discussing Quebec's secularism bill. The one that bans public employees from wearing religious symbols. And finally, we're going to be asking, do Jews need to worry about the no-refund policy on Passover food? So, before we get started, uh, I just want to pause for a moment and read a response that we got to something that we chatted about last week on the podcast. I posted on on, on Facebook, and, and a guy I went to university with, he uh, is, is a, a big supporter of the Canadian uh, Postal Union. For anyone who didn't listen last week, basically the Canadian Postal Union has uh, a, a staunch uh, pro-BDS, pro-Palestinian rights uh, uh, leadership. And uh, we, we were not very sympathetic, I think, the three of us in the room to the cause. So I just want to read what this guy wrote in response. Um, he says, the union does good work at home and abroad. They are far more robust and democratic institution than even our federal government can claim to be. They hold regular elections, have representatives from every region on the national level, and work on a local level with members of the wider community. All of these issues you point to were voted on and passed democratically at multiple different levels. To cry foul is to undermine the real efforts of grassroots workers who have invested their time in CUPW. These accusations also come from a long-time bias and place of ignorance within the conservative institutions of our shared Jewish community. I am tired of it. Many other young Jews are tired of it. As mentioned in your podcast, CUPW is responsible for bringing us maternity leave, something we now take for granted. And these are all very good points. In my response, I said, I still don't understand the connection between the male and BDS, which is fundamentally what we were all talking about. There's no logical connection. And, and his response to that was, it seems as though your version of a, quote, logical explanation does not account for solidarity with oppressed groups. I think this is a failure of imagination and empathy. Uh, okay, like, I'll take it. There's a sort of fundamental difference there. 
I have a quick question. Yeah. Uh, does the postal union have any stances on any other political uh, ongoings throughout the world? I throughout in in the world, I have no idea. Yeah, like outside of Canada and BDS, do they support or go against any other government's policies? I I am not certain that they have ever protested for the rights of. Syrians or Somalians or Eritreans or North Koreans or any other group, um, which, yeah, there is always the Israel bias. And you know what? That's about as good uh, a segue as any into our very first subject, Bereshit and its impact in the world. Um, I also noticed that our editor-in-chief, Yoni Goldstein, just walked in the room, and he has a few opinions about this. Uh, So, Yoni, what are you thinking? Um, first of all, uh, thanks for inviting me on, guys. Really appreciate it. Um, uh, I thought, like, I was listening to Dark Side of the Moon as we were watching it in the office yesterday. I thought that would be, like, an appropriately ironic <clears throat> soundtrack for the landing. And it was, like, terribly disappointing at the beginning as we were sitting there watching it. And uh, there was, like, a moment of confusion. And then, like, in typical Israeli fashion, like, the head of the... Space Agency was like, uh, yep, it crashed. That's it. Everybody can go home now. We'll try again. Why is that typical Israeli fashion? Well, as somebody um, put it on uh, on Twitter, Israelis are not the best drivers. (laughs) So like parking something, however many tens of thousands of kilometers away, um, maybe not their best skill suit. I, I don't know. But, I mean, they did a really good job of getting the spaceship to within 150 meters of the surface. <laughs> so that counts for something. They made it into the building. I was with some friends last night watching the Leafs game, Go Leafs Go, and uh, one of the friends was like, did you hear Israel made it to the moon? And the other friend was like, you know it crashed, right? Which was news to my first friend, which spawned a debate about whether getting all the way to the moon is an accomplishment and crashing there? Does that count as making it to the moon if you crash on the moon and don't land? Or is the landing yeah. the getting there? What do you guys think? Well, what was their plan once on the moon? My, my understanding is that once they landed on the moon, they had like a few hours to relay back information. But other than that, it was inevitably going to be space garbage anyway, in which case we did pretty good. Yeah, a few hours is more than enough time to build a Chabad outlet on the moon. <laughs> I think I think you make it to the moon if you crash on the moon. I mean, the the journey hasn't ha- haven't travel memes and aphorisms taught us anything. It's not about the destination; it's about the journey. But in this case, I think it was about the destination, but which they made it to. I think the real journey is the rovers you crash along the way. <laughs> Reach for the moon, even if you don't make it, you will crash on the moon. <laughs> Um, but I, I do want to ask, uh, uh, not ask, I do want to bring up um, one thing that, Noah, you, you brought to my attention just before, which is that, well, this is a, a, an interesting story. It's kind of optimistic, but it's also kind of sad. You know, you, you can see both angles of it. Um, what I wouldn't necessarily bring into this is uh, the Israel-Palestine conflict, which, uh, if you look on Facebook, many people do um, on Reuters. Uh, when they when they posted this story to their Facebook feed, the top comment, the number one comment with almost a thousand a thousand reactions, are they looking for more settlements to annex? A lot of people mentioned this sort of colonizing the moon thing. A lot of this like, oh well, they saw there were no Palestinians, so they just gave up and that kind of joke. And it got kind of even weirder in some other places. Uh, CNN, all last week on CNN, 
every Facebook post they made had a few hundred comments, maybe a thousand. This one had 3,000 comments, far and away the most popular story on CNN's Facebook of the last several days. There was one comment by, by a fellow named Benson DeWalt who said, All Jews do is hoard money. I'm sick of my tax dollars going to you rats. I don't like my tax money going to military supplies so you can kill the people you like to oppress. You think you rats would have learned something from the concentration camps. Ooh, Which is, bad. like, sh I'm sh I was actually shocked that that made it through all the Facebook filters. But then also I, I clicked on Benson DeWalt's Facebook page to see his profile. His top post is... He's selling a fog machine. <laughs> the caption is fog machine. Fog juice included. Bought for Halloween, but never used. Taking up storage space and need to get rid of. If, you, if you're worried about where your money is going, mm. why don't you start with not buying fog machines you don't need? Sure. Well, I think that's the big question about all the online comments because I find in reading comments there's a dis disproportionate amount of Israel hate. But it comes from people like your Bensons of the world. So does that really matter? Does it have like this big lie theory, which is like a Jewish anti-Semitic trope, being spread in the comments section online uh, on various media outlets and Facebook posts throughout the world? Does that have a real world impact? Actually, I'm kind of concerned about the fog machine. I'm thinking maybe we should <laughs> we should like get it for this podcasting room. It would probably like enhance the vibe. Quite you a bit. you want to give Benson Dewalt fifteen bucks? That's all it was. Yeah, it's just fifteen bucks US. <laughs> and the steal. juice is included. The fog juice is included. Yeah, I think that's a steal. I don't know that I want to give. See, there you money, go. But... I just I think it's. A steal. <laughs> well, you know what? Yeah, he was also selling an unused horse mask right under that. You know, those big rubber horse masks you see for like 40 bucks. So I don't know what, what Benson had planned for Halloween, but it didn't, it didn't pan out because he didn't wind up using any of it. Um, I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you. The, the general idea I get is that uh, anytime Israel is in the media at all, it's this. It's, it doesn't matter what the subject is. It doesn't matter whether it's shoot for the moon or if it's something that's actually happening in the Gaza Strip. It's, oh, look at Israel. Here's an excuse. I can just make an anti-Semitic BDS rant or something like that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I'm wondering how that sort of online noise translates to the average person, right? Like, like I don't know if more stories about Israel or less stories about Israel would change that or if People are always going to hate Jews, and so it just sort of happens, and we don't need to be concerned about it. Or it's something we should try and address, because you're not convincing anyone to change their minds online, are you? I suppose there are two things uh, to say to that. One is I think it's at least worth differentiating between the kinds of uh, comments like like Benson DeWalt's, which are like just filled with clear anti-Semitic imagery and tropes, and other ones on relevant political articles about Israel, even if we do disagree with them, that it's not, we can't just call them anti-Semitic. But that being said, I think what a lot of people say in terms of arguing online is you're not changing people's minds who have their minds made up, but you're writing for the people who don't have their minds made up. And it's the people who are going to either see this stuff unchallenged or see the challenge and the opposition to it. And that's like the theory behind waging these kinds of wars online. It's the people who are in the middle that you're writing for, not the people you're arguing directly against. I think that's the theory of it, at least. Do you think it leads, though, when Jews are publicly critical of Israel and in no way balanced or supportive of Israel, that that can lead to bystanders watching either 
going one way or the other just based on what their friend like I, I guess there's no facts like I, I don't know what's based in truth or not anymore so are we just listening to the opinions that our friends say and if someone is oh now I'm starting to ramble and get off this point <laughs> I was just gonna say Noah I I invited you on because I, I thought you were funny and did comedy and you're asking <laughs> like the biggest questions we've ever had on this podcast it became a very serious debate very quickly <laughs> I see you I see you falling down the existential <laughs> black hole which we now know what it this looks like this is why I try not to read comments at all <laughs> I see you falling down the black hole of, of the internet, just not knowing, like being having this existential crisis of not knowing what to believe and where to go. And 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 I, mm. I'm sorry, I don't have I don't have answers for you. The That's world all is I a have complex. It. All place. I have is questions and no <laughs> answers. Next up, we're going to be speaking about Quebec's Secular Bill 21, which bans religious symbols from the public sector. That means bus drivers can't wear kippas, teachers can't wear headscarves. People clearly support this because it's happening, and I have some strong opinions about it, which I don't usually have strong opinions, so this is new for me, or I don't usually feel comfortable sharing them if I do have strong opinions. This, I have a lot of strong opinions I'd like to share, but first I want to hear what you guys think about it. I, I don't think it's so good because we have freedom of religion under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in this country, I think. So, mm, isn't that a charter right? Quebec, what are you doing? How's that? Is that funnier? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I also just want to throw in before we get too into this that uh, there, there was a high school teacher who, who Janice Arnold interviewed in the Canadian Jewish News last week. She is an Orthodox woman and she wears a headscarf uh, instead of a wig. Uh, and she is one of the few people who's affected by this. I say few because I think it's people in the order of dozens, maybe maybe hundreds that are affected by this. It's very specific. And she said, it definitely makes me angry. They are creating a problem that there is not there. No one has ever complained about what I wear. I think the government has a misunderstanding. I don't wear this to say, look, everyone, I'm a Jew. It's a requirement of my religion. So I think that that is a, a good perspective and, and worth hearing. It's not like these people are trying to push their beliefs on other people. It's not like Muslims with with uh, headscarves or Jews with kippahs or, or, head, or wigs are... Um, trying to to make a stance with this it's just that's what it's just what they do i mean could you wear a wig for any other reason why can't you wear a wig for orthodox like you know you get into some really weird kind of questions about regulation and enforcement about this i think it's and i agree it's just it's it's creating an issue out of nothing i I, i'm not sure anyone really had a, a problem with this sort of stuff before um alex you said that you had some strong opinions so i'd like to to hear what you have to add here yeah, I was literally, I was seething on my drive home the other day. I couldn't listen to my podcast because I just was like getting all worked up preparing for this rant. So uh, I hope everyone's ready because <laughs> um, I think it is obvious that this is clearly harmful to people who do display these outward symbols of religion and would otherwise be working in government. We're working government in public uh, office or as a teacher or a bus driver, whatever it was, whatever they were doing before. Now these people have to choose between their religion and their livelihood. So right off the bat, for those people who are directly affected, it's clearly problematic and it's clearly not protecting their charter freedoms, as Noah brought up. But also what it comes down to is I think it's just invalidating people's way of life if they're religious. This this idea of secularism is something to attain to. It's meant to be in the name of the separation of church and state. To me, it's the opposite. To me, this is secularism as religion. The point of separating church and state is so people can be free to practice as they believe without having you know, some higher power, not metaphysical higher power, but a governmental higher power, 
oppress them in the way that they're not allowed to choose how to react, if, how to behave, sorry. And if that means not uh, following the dominant religion, that's good. But if the dominant religion is the absence of religion and you're still expected to conform to it, I think that's the exact same problem. And just, you know, the absence of props as opposed to the presence of them doesn't change the fact that you're not allowing people the right to live their lives that they want. And, and people who think that their lives and their worldview are, are entirely correct and others' lives and way of living are, are less valid and less valued, those are among the people and things I trust the least are those who are just entirely assured of, of their belief system and worldview and don't give any legitimacy to people who choose to live the way that they want to. It sounds like a, chi- like a policy that China would employ. <laughs> um, I will say one thing that I... One one thing that I like, one outcome that I like from this whole thing is that it puts Jews and Muslims on the same side of something. I kind of love these little issues where at least we, ha- we we find some common ground, we can rally together, we can be on the same side. Because uh, historically, Jews and Muslims have been very friendly before the 20th century. Um, I feel like individually, Jews and Muslims get along great. It's just as a greater whole that there's definitely some tension but like i have muslim friends that there's no issues with no of course i mean a lot and and on a on a human personality level it's rarely an issue but i kind of like that there are (laughs) i keep saying like i don't really like this but i appreciate that there is solidarity among uh these two groups who otherwise typically don't get along about political issues um so there is one silver lining on that generally alex though i I agree with what you were saying yeah i just think it's so obviously wrong (laughs) which is probably why it's so easy for for these groups that you know often argue on a lot of political things uh to come together not i mean also because they're both being persecuted by it but but yeah i agree with you michael well now that we know what jews do need to worry about let's segue on to our last subject Uh, Do Jews need to worry about not being able to refund Passover food? So in this upcoming uh, issue, or I guess the current issue of the Canadian Jewish News uh, newspaper, Dan Rosenberg has a column, uh, the title of which is, Is the No Refunds on Passover Item Signs Anti-Semitic? I'm just going to read you a little bit. The, the, The gist is that in a supermarket, your 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 Loblaws or your superstore or whatever, uh, you you can't return Passover food. It's kosher for Passover food. You can't return it. I didn't uh, know that. I didn't know it either. But I also, I mean, I don't keep kosher. I don't keep kosher for Passover, so I eat bread whenever I want. Uh, and 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 so I kind of gloss past that. But but other people have noticed it in in the CJN office. They talk about there are a few supermarkets in the Jewish neighborhoods in Toronto. So I'm just going to read a little bit, a small excerpt from his column. Are you interested in Choco Puffers? That's a kosher for Passover cereal, not a sugary medical device. If so, you'll see a big no refunds on Passover items sign right above it. Chametzless red velvet cupcake mix isn't eligible for returns, nor is Magic Max's Fruity Magic Loops, a cereal so magical it has the adjective twice on the front of the box. How many such signs are there? At one supermarket in Toronto, there were just 28 in one aisle. I counted. Guess what color the signs were? Yes, they're blue and white. On the one hand, I get why stores don't want anyone bringing back matzah after the holidays, but they also don't want giant three-foot chocolate bunnies or egg painting kits being returned after Easter. I'm still not sure who wants tofurkey and gravy-colored soda before or during Thanksgiving, 
let alone after the holiday, but that product actually exists, and I've never seen a sign saying you can't return it after the holiday. So the, the crux of his piece is, is basically uh, no other holiday has this no refunds policy. Every other holiday has total kitsch, but you can return anything you buy. It's, it's just uh, Passover that you can't. What do you guys make of this? Uh, do, do Jews need to worry about this? Firstly, no, they don't need to worry about it. They can be irked by it, sure, but full-blown worry? Let's save that for the bigger issues, I'd say. Uh, what is interesting What is interesting about this is, uh, at first I was thinking, well, you know, it's tough to resell Passover stuff because who wants that after the holiday? But if you remarketed that as gluten-free stuff, I think you really could have a big audience for uh, almond-based farfel or whatever other products people are trying to return. I, I guess my, my end thoughts on this are uh, only get what you need and no more than that. I have to say it, it's hard for me to like get very worked up about this or worried, <laughs> eat, but, you know, especially compared to some of the other things we were talking about today. But... I do have to admit that I find it at least a little curious that it's like all these 28 signs in one aisle and they're all blue and white and it's only for Passover food. You know, I don't I don't know if people just enjoy candied carrots so much that after Easter they can sell them all year long. But I can't imagine like some of the holiday specific foods don't cause the same problems. And if that's the case, um, I would call it anti-Semitic. <laughs> I think that's a stretch, but... I, I do wonder if there is some, like, economic reason if Passover food used to be refundable and stores really were losing more money out of it or or if they just have this idea that that people are going to try to return all those all this Passover food that they're not going to be able to sell and it's not, you know, there aren't any facts that bear that out. So that's something I'm curious about at least. Is it a cash root issue? Like, that's what I was just thinking is I, I don't know if it's a cash root issue that you can't return it. It has to do with once it's being bought that it's no longer kosher for Passover. That could be a possibility. I have no idea. My guess, my, my best guess is that uh, uh, Passover food just isn't good. Uh, like, by definition, it's just not a tasty. Israeli Passover food. That's okay, good. But we're in Toronto. And <laughs> I should say the GTA. Um, Make potato bread for Pesach, Manischewitz. Get on it. Yeah. Uh, but generally speaking, pass, like, Passover food is a punchline. It's something that's not particularly good. And I think one of the reasons they don't want it returned is because they can't resell it. As opposed to something like an Easter uh, chocolate, an Easter bunny chocolate. Um, I only buy those after Easter because they're 30 cents. Like, those things you can move after the holidays. Um the, the, the Thanksgiving examples, I mean, he gave some sort of weird examples, but, like, Thanksgiving food is, is generally food. Like, I will make pumpkin pie in December. It's not that big of a deal. But kosher for Passover stuff, I wouldn't eat that even during Passover. So I think it's it's just a, a market issue. Do you think you can return fruitcake on Christmas? Like, that's another punchline-y food. You know what? That I'm wondering if there's an issue. Different cultures uh, eat fruitcakes at different times of the year. Like, in uh, in, in Spain, there's the, I think Three Kings Day is in January. That's their Love Christmas. Love that one. Fave holiday. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, not that we're in Spain, which doesn't really validate an argument one way or another. We're Spanish <laughs> yeah. listeners. But, I mean, the, the idea is that, theoretically, yeah, you could 
eat fruitcake. You could eat fruitcake anytime. I just mean like the whole kosher for Passover. It's, a very, it's like a dietary restriction that nobody needs after Passover as opposed to just general food, which is well, whatever. I mean, you can eat it whenever. Just eat it when it's on sale. Fine. Do you like matzah brai? Matzah brai? Like, fr- like French toast, but where the bread is matzah. Have you ever heard of this dish or had that? I have never had that. I think you might have to explore more Passover food options, Michael, because there's lots of great stuff out there if you search hard enough through uh, that second kitchen in your home reserved for you not keeping kosher on Passover. <laughs> what, what, so your accessory kitchen. What is It's French toast with matzah? It's the, How does it not crumble? So for whatever reason, it's eggy. It's eggier, but it's. Uh, I guess it maintains a sort of limp cracker... Uh, aesthetic to it you're really selling me on this surprisingly good with a little bit of maple syrup perhaps some butter whipped butter which Can you is buy a in product supermarkets? in Passover matzah brai no you have to make it yourself I know maybe tough. if they sold matzah brai maybe that would be returnable <laughs> if, it's, if it's as good as you say it is maybe in the prepared food section I don't know I haven't been to all the kosher stores this city has to offer I will also say uh, as far as returns go I can absolutely imagine uh, a, a flock of 50, 60 year old Jewish mothers coming, fl- flooding the supermarket after Passover with their arms full of Passover food they didn't eat and demanding refunds because, well, it's unopened. It's perfectly good. And the, the manager's just saying, oh, I don't want to deal with that. I, I, <laughs> this, <laughs> I, I, I could see that being a, a, a practical, in, in which case, yeah, it is discrimination and we should worry about it. I don't think that's the case. But, but it could be. Could be. I also just want to say, uh, this sounds like a very um, GTA and I suppose greater Toronto, or sorry, bigger, larger Canadian cities with larger Jewish communities centric problem. Because in Halifax, where I know you lived, Michael, there was only one superstore that sold any Passover food. <laughs> so uh, I had to trek all the way out to the Joseph House superstore just for gefilte fish. And it was in a jar. It was, it was not the same. Could so, you return it after the holiday? I don't know. I, it was so much work to get out there, I wouldn't have even wanted to, to be honest. <laughs> not worth the schlep. <laughs> Just make all your own Passover food instead of buying other stuff. That, when You're, you asking can make a lot. Stuff. You're asking a lot from people at a busy time of year. That's why we love our mothers and partners and Jewish women in general, because <laughs> they do so much for us in terms <laughs> Of prepping for the holidays. Sexist. I cook a lot. You said you're not even having a Passover meal. No, I said I don't keep kosher for Passover. Mm, see? I, I made bread yesterday. <laughs> kosher for Passover bread? <laughs> no, but it, it, it's potato. Uh, it's it is potato whole wheat. Oh, see? That's basically Pesach bread. Yeah, except, for the, except for the seven cups of flour in it and the yeast. Potato flour? No. It's, oh. ma- it's mashed potatoes. In in bread. Do we have any ending comments? This whole episode's cut, right? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to the third episode of our podcast and the first episode of the Canadian Jewish Schmooze. I'm Alex Rose. I'm Michael Freiman. Thanks very much to Noah Liebtag and uh, CJN editor Yoni Goldstein for swinging by and giving some comments on this podcast. Uh, This episode was edited by me and produced by the CJN. Our intro music is by Vanya Zhuk and our outro music is by Lache Swing. 
Thanks for listening. And if you haven't yet, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. Google Play. Are, uh, are there other ones? Uh, yeah, there's another one. I forget the name of it, but someone was like, you should put it on this one. And I did. So you could find it there, so too. So you're on that one. <laughs> and if we're not on where you listen to our podcast, let us know. And we'll be there soon. And Chag Sameach. Happy Passover. <laughs>